I received an email not long ago concerning the lack of representation Canada's authors receives on this site. Which, I assure you, isn't intentional, but which is an embarrassing oversight given Canada's literary richness. And I'm not joking. And to prove that I'm not joking, I am hereby announcing Canadian Short Fiction Month on Mied's Bedtime Story podcast. And I don't mean that in the same way people announce, you know, Estonian Sestina Month so that they can get the Estonian Sestina out of their way and not have to think about it for the rest of the year. I mean, this could easily become the year of the Canadian short story. So, good evening. It's Thursday, the 12th of February, 2009, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. The Orchard by Ernest Buckler I was only eight at the time, and no more impressionable, I think, than any other child. But I still remember that day of long ago, right down to its very texture. I was watching what Mother was doing. The tissue paper, which lined the bureau drawer that held her keepsakes, had yellowed, and she was changing it to fresh. Then she dusted each object taken from the drawer before putting it back. She was humming a little tune as she worked, until she came to one particular box. Her humming stopped then, and she held this box in her hand with such a breathless sort of silence. It made me stare at her face. Mother always saved pretty boxes, and this one had once been pretty. But now it had faded with many years of age. Once the cardboard cover had had a pattern of paper roses pasted on it. But as the glue had loosened, the flowers had browned and curled up at the edges. I asked Mother to let me see inside the box. She still had that mute look on her face, but she did as I asked. When she opened the box, it was my turn to stare at what I saw. A tiny cardboard cross, the bare thread showing where wild flowers, now withered and fallen loose, had been sewn to the cross. A small beaded change purse, a tiny braid of hair, so golden it must have been the envy of the sun. I didn't have to ask the meaning of what I saw. I knew instinctively that these were the last of Ruby's things. I never saw my sister Ruby. She had died at age six, years before I was born. But I had heard again and again what a rare and shining child she was. Was she so beautiful? I asked Mother. Yes. Could she tame wild birds? Yes. Could she really recite a dozen psalms without getting a word wrong? Yes. I went outside to play. 
but things wouldn't seem to play with me. There was a quality in the air that I had never noticed before, quieter than silence, quieter than mysteries. Though it was June, there was none of that whispering together of things growing side by side in the fields. Things seemed oblivious to themselves. The leaves of the pear tree moved, but without deciding to. Even the stones, which have their own way of speaking, were deaf and dumb. It wasn't the hush of sadness. Sadness is active. It was simply the first time I had found out about distance, the cruelest word in the language. The feeling didn't last. The shadow of a leaf moved, having decided to. A cloud drifted across the sun. Then nowness came back to the stones. Everything in the day heard its own name and answered to it. It was as if something you'd taken to be an object had turned out, on nearing you, to be a face. And I lay on my back in the grass, squinting my eyes to make patterns of the shadows, luxuriously thoughtless. Young or old, we nearly always discover the nature of things by a chance illumination, touched off by what need be no more than a seemingly irrelevant trifle. Let your eye happen at the right moment on a moss-eaten shingle that has lost all but one of its nails to the wind of the years. And you will know all there is to know about melancholy. Watch, not a lark rising, but a simple daisy, cleaner than diamonds, bowing to the sun-companioned fields, and you may be struck in a flash with the victory of feeling overthought. And so the chance discloser works in the case of hope, and so with sorrow, and so with pleasure, and so with plans. My father was the quiet one of the family, outwardly at least. There were no fluctuating currents of feeling in his face as our activities bustled and eddied around his soberness but I'm sure that he too knew moments when some small incident suffused him with total understanding. I think of the mornings we went to pick snow apples. The ancient orchard was the site of what, years ago, had been my great-grandfather's homestead. But the forest had not quite reclaimed it and turned it into a wilderness. The apple trees still bore fruit, and the narrow road that led there was still possible for horse and buckboard. I don't know why the journey to pick the snow apples had a sort of magic for me, but it did, and the magic never dimmed. I remember how it was when, in the dawning light, we neared our destination. When I knew that one more turn in the road and we'd be there, 
a shiver would run through me, and I'd close my eyes to the scattered trees at the edge of the orchard, so that when I opened them, I'd all at once have the whole clearing in view. It was like a place out of time. In another light, the ancient trees, gnarled and twisted as they were, might have stood for torture. But here, they spoke only of lasting, and the apples they still bore in plenty sang with a tart and tingling sweetness on the tongue. A frost the night before had made them just right for picking, and when my father's burly arms shook the boughs, the fruit came down in showers, and the whole day smelled and tasted of apple. And when we knelt in the clarion purity of the cidery October light to gather the apples in baskets, it was like the gentlest of peace-made flesh. As for my father, though his face showed no outward change, I know that, as he lifted the laden barrels onto the cart as easily as another man might lift a pailful, and as he too felt the sanctity almost of this burnished day, he learned about strength and joy in their entirety. When the containers were level full, Mother gathered apples in her apron to top them off, and Father expertly packed them into such a tight crown that none would juggle free. And then it was time to go home. In a curious way, it was Mother who then seemed to be the centre of everything. It was always like that when it came time to part with a splendid day. We were suddenly welded by the vow, silent but almost fierce, that we would always keep her safe from slight or harm. My grandfather, I see him now, doesn't look old, although there is a far-off look in his eyes sometimes. A gaze that isn't there at all in the snapshot of him and grandmother taken, each young and smiling at the other's consciousness of the camera the week before death overtook her so suddenly. The gaze is there now as he kindles the kitchen fire. He knows how good the warmth will feel against our flesh now that the beginning night chill has subdued us. He tips up the back cover of the stove to see if the kindling has caught, and a tendril of smoke spirals for a moment in the air. It is shapeless, and yet an interlacing of all shapes, as, ceaselessly changing, they twine and intertwine and melt, one into the other. His eyes are no longer grave and inward-searching. They never are when I'm a chatterbox, and he's my most indulgent listener. But as he watches the tendril of smoke, it is certain that he has discovered all there is to know about memory. It would not be true to say that Ruby was constantly in the back of my mind. But ever since the day when Mother showed me the box of her things... 
the thought of her would sometimes cast a spell of silence on me. As if through silence, so like the silence of that first day, I could, must, somehow reach her. One day in the quiet of the back field, where I'd gone to search for four-leaf clovers, I had the strongest feeling that I could reach her if I called her name aloud. I looked around. There was no one or nothing to overhear. I saw the golden hair again. Ruby, I called softly. There was no answer. Ruby, I called again in a stronger voice. There was no answer. Ruby, I called softly again. Ruby. There was no answer. I didn't find out about death.